morning, guys. Good to see you. Why don't we open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, which is where we're at. We started several months ago, if you guys are new, uh, in this great series, going through this great Gospel. So what we're going to be taking a look at here today is Mark chapter 6, about verse 30. We're going to read a story that most of you guys are probably pretty familiar with. It's one of those stories, if uh, no doubt, if you've been brought up kind of within a Christian home, or if you've ever been to a church service as a young child, uh, you no doubt would have heard this story. It's the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. So 5,000 men, perhaps women and children as well, no doubt. So upwards of maybe 20,000 people were part of this event. So I'm going to read the story to you guys, picking up at verse 30. We'll go down to where the story ends. Uh, which is around verse 44, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work on uh, this story. I think the first thing that we'll try to do is we will try to deconstruct what your Sunday school taught you, Sunday school teacher taught you about the story, because I'm certain we have misconceptions about this passage in our minds. So hopefully we'll deal with those when we get there. So let's read the story, beginning at verse 30, chapter 6, Gospel of Mark. It says this, The apostles returned to Jesus and told all of them uh, that had been done and taught. And then he said, that's Jesus, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure, not even to eat. And they went away in boat to a desolate place by themselves. And now many saw them going, and they recognized them. And they ran there from foot, all from towns, and they got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and they said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, No, you give them something to eat. And then they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Come and see. And when they had found out, uh, he, they said, We have five loaves and two fish, and then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties, and then taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven, and he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves, and he gave it to his disciples, and set before the people, and he divided the two fish, and he divided the two fish among all of them, and they all ate, they were all satisfied, and then he took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces, and of fish, and those who ate the loaves we're 5,000 men. So, Father, we ask you right now that you just open our eyes and that you would speak to us. God, we pray as well that you just help us understand your word, really just in the, in the context of your word, that we would see it as a regular, ongoing revelation of who you are and what you're like. And God, we want to just give you this time that, uh, for you to do your work in our hearts. God, we give you permission to just edit our lives. God, things that are out of sync or out of order, God, we just ask you that you would change us, that this morning would not just be merely about information, but it would be about revelation that brings about a total change of our hearts and our lives. So we just commit this morning in your hands, God, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to first of all really kind of begin this story by... In a lot of ways, like I said, kind of trying to deconstruct maybe what some of you have been taught or maybe what some of you have come to see with regard to this story. Now, what I mean by that is for some of us, maybe when, when we first heard this story, uh, if you were maybe, for example, young, you saw the story um, on a flannel graph and it was all green and beautiful and everyone had smiles on their faces and there were like doves flying around and, 
just gentle breeze. It was just kind of like this very serene. Everybody was happy, and Jesus comes out, and there's like these little red checkered, you know, gingham blankets all around the place, and everyone just sit, sat down. It's all calm and serene, and, and, and everything's just this beautiful springtime day, and then Jesus comes out. He's like, I want to give you guys some food, and everybody's happy and chipper, and, and, and I really want to try to deconstruct that because in reality, I don't think that's at all what's happening here. We're told uh, first of all, that in every single of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this story actually appears, which tells us something right off the bat. It's a very important story, okay? Secondly, we're also told that this uh, whole scenario takes place around the seashores of Galilee. Thirdly, we also know that it was in spring. We know that for sure. John tells us that this took place during the time of the Passover. Another hint that we see or clue that we see in the text is that everything was green. If you know anything about Israel, you know that most of the time throughout the year, Israel is not green. It's brown, all right? It's just like Bakersfield. And every once in a while, it turns green because it's, it's either wintertime or it's the beginning stages of spring. And so everything's still kind of green. And so, uh, so we know the time of year in which this took place. Um, but it's significant to note that it was around the seashores of Galilee because what typically happened around the shores of Galilee, especially first century, uh, was this was the place where people would go to really gather momentum for the revolution. Another thing that I noticed with regard to this is that every single gospel account very clearly tells us there's 5,000 men. This is really important. Now, some of the other gospel accounts actually tell us that this is beside the women, meaning there were women and children. So most scholars believe that there may have been upwards of maybe 20,000 people here. This was not a small event. But every gospel account tells us very clearly, emphatically, that there are 5,000 men. Now, normally, you can't get 5,000 men together for anything, except it's like promise keepers, or a concert, or war. All right? Um, or a football game, okay? Now, there's no football game going on here. This is certainly not the time of promise keepers, and this probably indicates the fact that what 5,000 men are doing out in the wilderness around the seashores of Galilee, the, Galilee, this place that was renowned for revolution's beginning, is that these were 5,000 men who were trying to travel and follow along with Jesus because they saw Jesus as a revolutionary leader. It's really important to know this. So here's what's happening, because we know very clearly in John's account that by the end of this whole scenario, by, by the end that Jesus does this miracle, these people were told basically in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, perceiving that they were about to come take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew. So we're told very clearly, take a look at the text that will be thrown up here in a second here, what happens is that Jesus is literally taken or about to be taken by these guys apprehended and forced to become a king we're talking revolution here these were emotionally charged men that were ready for battle these were men that were not happy it wasn't chipper this wasn't like a you know happy day where everybody's just like oh jesus we want to hang out with you and have food this is everybody all the men gathering together saying jesus we want you to be our king that will lead us into battle against the Romans, so that we can strike quickly, strike effectively, and throw off the yoke of the Romans, and you can become king, and we will be your servants. That's what's happening here. It's absolutely certain that's what's happening here. There's a couple clues as well to the text that indicate this. For example, um, 
there's an allusion to an Old Testament passage when it says that when Jesus uh, saw the crowds of the people, it says that he looked out over them and he saw them as being sheep without a shepherd. This is an allusion, no doubt, to the book of Numbers, chapter 27. It says this, Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who can go out before them and come out before them um, and shall lead them so that they will be a congregation of the Lord and that they would not be like sheep without a shepherd. So what, John, or what Mark's doing here is he's making an Old Testament connection to what happened when Moses took the people of Israel out of the wilderness... Remember, Moses was the one that fed the manna in the wilderness, in desolate places. Here's Jesus in the wilderness, a desolate place, and he's got 5,000 people that he's about to feed. And Mark tells us, Jesus looked and he saw them as a sheep without a shepherd. So what I think perhaps the reason why Mark adds this here is because he wants us to see the connection, that everybody in their mind is having this expectation that Jesus will be the fulfillment of what Moses prayed for. That he will be the prophet, but that he will also be a king, meaning a shepherd. Typically, in the Old Testament times, whenever a shepherd was referenced, uh, we would typically see a shepherd not as just simply being some guy out in the middle of a field, all dirty and all rugged, leading sheep. But typically, shepherds were allusions or uh, idioms to a king. And so here, I think in in the very text that we're reading, that there were all these expectations that Jesus would be a king and that he would lead these people out and he would be a prophet like Moses, he would be a king like David, and he would be the one that would basically lead these 5,000 men, perhaps even in their children, into this brand new revolution, throwing off the yoke of the Romans, reestablishing a theocracy based around God. That's what's happening here. That's exactly what's taking place. So with that being said... There's all this expectation in the minds of the people that are here. And here's what Jesus does. He does something so radically unusual and totally unexpected. It's because typically whenever you have a revolution, what you have is the leader of that revolution training people by giving them guns, teaching them combat techniques, showing them how to be a ninja, showing them all sorts of means and ways by which they can throw off the yoke of their enemy. That's not what Jesus does here. He teaches them a lesson and bread distribution. This is a totally unexpected revolution. That's what's happening here. No one expected this type of revolution. But this is the type of revolution that Jesus was. That's what's happening. So with that being said, we see here in the passage, I'm going to just simply take a look at three things that this unexpected revolution really was based upon three ideas or three things that we see in their text. I'll throw them out to you first of all, and we'll take them bit by bit. First of all, we see that this unexpected revolution was based upon really the revelation of God's kingdom. So we see Jesus preaching. Secondly, we see that this revolution was based upon the demonstration of God's compassion. We're told that Jesus healed, Jesus fed, and then Jesus also then commissions his disciples basically to do the same. And thirdly, we see that this uh, unexpected revolution was based upon really the redistribution of God's life. And there's some hints or clues that Mark gives us in the text that will show us exactly the type of revolution that Jesus was actually initiating. It was a revolution that had never happened on the face of the planet up until this point. Every former revolution up until this point was always a revolution in which someone typically had their blood shed. In this case, blood will be shed, but it won't be blood that anybody expected. Totally different revolution. Totally different revolution. All of the revolutions, typically people would be raised up 
and they would take power in the name of their leader. This revolution, they would lose power in the name of their leader. Totally different revolution. So this is what's happening here. They're going out, expected to be given weapons, expected to be trained. Jesus says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself and about how this revolution is radically different. So the first thing that I wanted us to take a look at is really this unexpected revolution involved the revelation of God's kingdom. Take a look at verse 30. The apostles returned, and Jesus told them, and he says all that they had done and taught. And I remember up until this point, the disciples were sent out. They come back. They've got a lot of great stories. They tell of those stories. And verse 31 says, And then they said, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. And for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to even eat. So here's what happens. They come back. They're tired. They've been on a missionary journey. They come back, and they're like, We're really tired. Jesus said, Great. Come along. Come away with me. We're going to get away to a desolate place. And they're looking forward to a day off. Right? That's not what happens. They hop in a boat. They're expecting to go to another part of the lake by which they can just go rest and relax. They get to the other side, and what we're told in the story is that because the Sea of Galilee was actually below sea level, and all the surrounding regions are a little bit higher, uh, it's very easy to see wherever a boat's going. So you can kind of watch uh, a boat as it's set out on the sea, and you can pretty much predict exactly where it's going to head to or where it's going to go. That's what happened. So these 5,000 men... Obviously, they see Jesus, they see his disciples in the boat in the middle of the lake, and they're just anticipating wherever he's going to go. So in their minds, they're thinking, we're going to go beat Jesus to that spot. We're going to head over there, and once Jesus gets over there, we're going to continue our, our Jesus to you know, meet our needs. But in Jesus' mind, and at least in the disciples' minds, no doubt, uh, they're thinking we're going to go have a day off, and Jesus is obviously realizing that that's not exactly the way things are going to shake out. But verse 32, it says this, and then they went out, away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going, and they recognized him, and they ran there on foot to the towns, uh, and they got there ahead of him. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. This is amazing to me, because Jesus could have been frustrated, right? If you've ever been around a lot of people, a lot of times, and there comes a point where you just don't have any more emotional energy to give out, Right? A lot of ways, sometimes that's the way my life can be, is that I can spend a lot of time talking to people a lot of hours throughout the day, and I come home, and I'm tired. I have a lot of words left. And what happens is I need some time to just have my batteries recharged. Well, imagine that times 100 with Jesus. He's not just simply talking, but he's also spending a lot of time with a lot of people. Many hundreds, perhaps thousands of people are following Jesus, and they're very demanding. So Jesus is looking for a day off, and so when these people come to Jesus, he's not rebuking them. He's not yelling at them, saying, you guys, just leave me alone. Give me some time off. I need a day off. I need a break. Jesus actually looks at them, has compassion on them, and then begins to re-engage them. This is amazing to me. And again, all this is done while Jesus is in the flesh. The thing you got to understand with Jesus is that, yes, he's God, but he took upon himself the limitations of man. So that means that every time Jesus does something in his flesh, there's no doubt he's feeling hunger pains. There's no doubt he's feeling fatigue. There's no doubt that he's feeling tired, but he keeps going. Why? Because he's God? Well, yeah, because he's God, but at the same time, he's trusting God in his flesh, in his natural humanity, to keep him going. I find a lot of hope in that. Because the reality is, the Bible's going to tell me that in the same way, I have the same power of God working in me, and you have the same power of God working in you if you're a believer, that we can do these same things. That we don't have to always give in to just simply 
being pushed to the very edge, that there is still oftentimes strength that God gives us. Now, there are times that we've got a Sabbath, times that we've got a break, times we've got to break away, times we've got to pull away and just simply rest and relax. But at the end of the day, what we see with Jesus is that Jesus is doing this in his humanity as God in reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit to do all this. And we're told that he says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he began to teach them many things. So Jesus' revolution has to do with instruction. The instruction that Jesus gives them is the typical, uh, typical instruction that he's been giving them from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. There's no doubt that there's no difference to this. In other words, Jesus regularly communicating to them the power of the Gospel. This is our message, guys. We don't really have any other message. The power that we have been given to help people is the power of the gospel. It's really important to know this. That the message of the church should not be just simply mere self-help or different ways of ideas or psychological ideas or sociological concepts or even historical concepts. All of those things may have their place and may have important part within the way that we communicate it. But at the end of the day, what is most important that Jesus did in terms of communicating to the crowds of people was the gospel. He shared with them what God was like. He shared with them what God was doing and how God was fulfilling his plan through himself. That Jesus is the world's solution. That Jesus is God's answer to a world that's been broken. That he is the good news. That God's not casting away the world. That God's restoring the world. He's redeeming it. And he's redeeming it through his appointed person. In this case, Jesus. That's the message we have. It's really important to know this. Because typically what can oftentimes happen is that the church historically has lost focus on this. That sometimes in a lot of different ways. That the church has sometimes lost focus on this where things get off balance and begin to focus merely upon social activity or political activity. Or even, I would even say, eschatological revelation. In other words, end times focus. Everybody focuses on the end times or everybody focuses on sociological issues or everybody focuses upon some form of political issues. And not that any of those things are not important because all of them have some level of importance. But at the end of the day, the most important message that Jesus preached that we've been given is the gospel. So we have to preach. It's Jesus. I hope you know that. So if you're a dad, for example, the greatest message that you as a dad can share with your kids is Jesus. Tell your kids about Jesus. Look for every single opportunity and way to tell them about Jesus. I do this with my kids. I watch movies with them, and I'll stop it. I'll stop the movie periodically, and I'm just like, hey, let's take a look at this scenario, and I try to bring Jesus into it. Because I don't want the movie to be the thing that's dictating to my kids or giving them sermons without at all editing it or screening it or somehow filtering it through the gospel. I want my kids to get Jesus. So the point that I'm making is this, is that Jesus preached. He revealed. The point of preaching is ultimately revelation. To reveal who God is, what God is like, that he's both powerful and he's both loving. He's holy and he's also just. That this is the message that Jesus preached. And that Jesus preached this message that ultimately through the solution that God provided through himself, that this is good news. That's what Jesus preached. That's the message that we should also be preaching as well. Because that brings 
liberty. That brings freedom to people's souls. So we see, first of all, that this unexpected revolution was based upon the revelation of God's kingdom. Second thing that we notice is that this unexpected revolution was based upon the demonstration of God's compassion. Okay, so what we see here throughout the story, pick it up about verse 34. Again, that's just that little phrase where it says, and then he, that's Jesus, had compassion on them because he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus not only taught, but he did. It's really important to note this about Jesus' life. He was not just merely a man who taught things, but he did things. That what Jesus does, he doesn't come as merely a teacher and says, listen, follow my teachings and you'll be saved. He says, follow me and you'll be saved. Come to me and you'll be saved. That's what makes Jesus distinct or different from a lot of different other religious leaders throughout history. Is that most other religious leaders throughout history would come and they would say that they have a series of teachings or revelations or ideas that were given to them through some sort of spirit revelation or through some sort of divine revelation or whatever the case is. And then therefore the power of their message is listen to these teachings, apply these teachings and you will live. That's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't just simply say, do the best you can to follow the Bible. That's religion, by the way. All right? What Jesus does is he comes and he says, here's the standard. Here's the revelation of who God is. And here's how they're made to be understood through the teaching and the preaching. But here's what I will do. And then he does. He does healings. He will ultimately provide the ultimate final healing by himself being nailed to the cross. Jesus does. All right, so in what, what we see here in the passage in verse 35, it says, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. So send them away, go into the surrounding countryside and the villages, and buy for themselves something to eat. But he answered them, He says, You go and give them something to eat. So really what we see here is we see Jesus doing something. Jesus demonstrating God's compassion, God's kindness, really by two different means. The first means is through himself, okay? Through some of the other gospel accounts, what we see is that Jesus, in this particular story, is that aside from, you know, making bread, creating bread, doing this miracle, Jesus also healed some people. So he does signs, miracles, and wonders. In fact, the gospel of John tells us he really looks at what Jesus has done here, not only through the distribution of bread, but also through the healing of other people that have been sick, and he describes these things as signs. In fact, the way that the Gospel of John finishes or concludes this particular story, it says, and they saw the signs that Jesus had done, and they saw him as the prophet, meaning the prophet likened unto Moses. And it was immediately after they identified Jesus as the prophet likened unto Moses, that's when they immediately kind of jumped to the next level, and they're like, we should make this guy our king, right? So in the Jewish expectation, they saw that God's Messiah, God's solution, was not just going to be a prophet who preached good messages, but that he would also not just simply be a king who was able to lead into some sort of historic battle, but that he would be both a prophet and a king, and Jesus fit that bill, Jesus merges these two Old Testament strains together and brings them together in one. That Jesus is both prophet and king and priest, actually, and he brings them all together. And so what we see here is that through Jesus' life, he does these miracles. It's really important to know this, that Jesus really does miracles. And I think the way or the reason why in which Jesus does miracles is very important. Jesus basically comes onto the scene, and he recognizes that these people are hungry. So he feeds them. 
or recognizes that somebody's blind, so he heals their blindness, or recognizes that somebody may be demonized, and so he casts out a demon, or somebody may be dead, and so he raises them from the dead, resuscitates them. So what we see really in Jesus' miracles is that the miracles of Jesus aren't merely suspensions of the natural order, right? They're not just simply suspensions of this natural world. They're actually restorations of it. It's really important to know this. Because we live in a day and an age in which people typically have this tendency to look at Jesus' miracles and they're like, I want to see a miracle. In some ways, it's almost like Jesus is a shaman, right? Jesus is some sort of magician. I want to see Jesus do something to whip up some sort of miracle. Then I'll believe. Then I'll be convinced. But Jesus comes on the scene and basically says, I don't do miracles just for the sake of pleasing you. I do miracles for a particular purpose of pointing all creation back to myself. That my miracles aren't just merely simply a suspension of the natural order, the way things are naturally are, but really the reason why I do miracles is to basically restore and redeem and to point back to something the way it was. In fact, all miracles when you think of this, because every time Jesus does a miracle, whether it be healing someone, giving someone food, raising someone from the dead, all of these things are indicators that the way that God originally created the world was that there was no hunger. There was no pain. There was no blindness. There was no crippling disease. There was no death. So every time Jesus does a miracle, he's basically pointing back to the way things were, but he's also pointing forward to the way things will be. In other words, he's saying everything is headed towards something, some place, some destination, and I will be the one that will take you there. Every time Jesus does a miracle, this is what he's indicating, what he's stating, that I will be the one that will bring about the restoration of all things. There is no restoration outside of me, is really what Jesus is trying to convey. This is really important to know this. Because really what we see is that all revolutions, all of us as individuals, we know that something's not right in this world, right? All of us know that disease, sickness, hunger, death are not right. In fact, I would even say this. Every single one of you, whether you're a Christian or not, have engaged in a campaign to rid yourself of disease, hunger, and death, right? Do you agree with that? Every one of you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your worldview is. I don't care if you're straight up pagan, worship devils, or you're a Christian. Every one of us have engaged upon a campaign to somehow rid ourselves of disease, hunger, and death. Depending upon your worldview of how you see that. But what the gospel is trying to say is that Jesus has a campaign to rid the world, not just individuals, but rid the world of disease, death, and pain, and hunger, and starvation through himself. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And so for what Jesus is trying to establish here is that you can engage in all sorts of revolutionary means to try to rearrange the natural order. At some point, unless Jesus is the center of all, every single revolt will end back into some other form of tyranny. Every time. Some other form of slavery. And so in other words, darkness is never fully pushed back. Evil is never fully rid. Light never truly fully prevails forever. Because it's just simply swapping one God, one idol for another. But Jesus comes along and says, 
listen, this revolution is through me. I have a campaign. I have a purpose. I have a plan at great expense to myself to rid the world of all of the vices that every one of you struggle with, deal with, and are confronted with, and are actually engaged in some sort of vicious campaign currently to fight against it. As time goes on, right, it's 2,000 years later from this, we figured all sorts of great ways, right? We have all sorts of new means, you know, fat blasters we can take, and we're like, I'll rid the, my body of disease, I'll take these pills, and I'll work out hard, or I'll sign up at some gym, or I'll put this cream on my face, and it will rid my face of age. Like, you know what I mean? Or Botox, or all sorts of crazy means in which we try to engage this battle to push back all of these things that we're confronting. But Jesus says all of those things, you can never fully stop them, ever. Because at some point, they will finally at some point overtake you. But Jesus says, you come to me, you come through me, and I offer you hope at great expense to myself. So we see Jesus really being the one, ultimately, who you see this demonstration of God's compassion. Uh, we also see, secondly, through Jesus' disciples. Now, this is amazing to me, because in all of the other gospel accounts that actually tell us about this story, it's very interesting when you see the disciples. I think it's in John's account. John actually adds a little bit of an instruction. He tells us that Jesus turns to one of the disciples, Thomas, and he's like, Thomas, where should we get food? And Thomas like, I have no clue. All right? And so Jesus, it says in, in John, Jesus did this to test him. All right. Now remember, these guys just came off of a missions trip, right? They just finished a missions trip. They were casting out demons. They were healing the sick. They were doing all these miraculous things. And now here they are in a boat. They get off of the boat. They're surrounded by 5,000 men that are ready for battle. And Jesus is like, we've got to feed these guys. So just kind of a step back from this is kind of interesting because here they are. Jesus is the main conference speaker. Have you ever been to a conference, like, you know, around lunchtime? Uh, rather than that conference providing lunch for you, it just says, Go out and get lunch on your own, right? It's, it's kind of like what's going on here. This is a conference. Uh, Jesus is the conference speaker, probably a very good conference speaker at that. And so here they are, kind of intermission, break time. And all the disciples are like, okay, Jesus, uh, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing around us for miles. Uh, we need to send these people out to go get food on their own. Jesus, like, turns to them, and he says, no, you feed them. And it's very interesting because the response or the way that I should say in which Jesus emphasizes is the emphasis in all of the Greek texts is on the you. In other words, you do something about this. This isn't like for me to do. This is you. You do something about this. You figure out a means. Now, what's amazing to me about this whole story is that this is, this is completely an impossible task. And that's the point. So Jesus is asking these guys who not only are disbelieving, but they're actually cynical because when, when Jesus says, you do it, here's what their response is. Where are we going to get food to, you know, buy food? Or when we, where are we going to get money to buy food for all of these people? It's sort of this sarcastic tone of like, really, Jesus? you got to be kidding me. Are you crazy? Are you nuts? Like, where, you know, you claim to be a prophet. How could you tell us to do something as silly as this? These guys are cynics. They're just like you and me. All right? So they're cynical, they're disbelieving, they're powerless. Just the type of people that Jesus loves to use for this new revolution. You need to hear this. Because some of you, you look at your lives, we look at our lives and we think, I'm the least likely candidate, the least likely person to be used by God to bring light into someone else's life, to bring help into someone else's life. 
You don't know my life. You don't know all the things I struggle with. You don't know the disbelief that I have. You don't know the sin that I struggle with. You don't know the doubts that I face. You don't know the fears that I have. You're right, I don't. Jesus does, though. Just like he knew it in these 12. And yet he still enlists them. He still called them. That's what Jesus does with us today. Really, at the end of the day, it's not so much, uh, one guy put it this way, he says this, only the inadequate are the adequate. Right? It's only the people that look at themselves and realize, I'm totally inadequate. Jesus says, perfect. That's what I'm looking for. Someone that is not going to take the boast. You know, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians describes something like this. You know, that God doesn't call many wise, not many strong, not, ma- not many, you know, notable, notable people are chosen. God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So that at the end of the day, when something amazing happens through their life, God gets the glory and not that individual. You need to know this because some of you spend your whole life looking at what you don't have and think, I don't have that much. So let me ask you this, because what Jesus basically surmises with these guys after asking them this question, and they come back and they're just like, Jesus, all we have is, you know, some kids' lunchables. Like we have got like a few sardines and like, you know, some bread. That's about it. Jesus is like, perfect. That's what I want. So you can look at your life and be like, I don't have anything. Well, what do you have? What do you have? Because every one of us have something that would maybe amount to nothing more than five loaves and two fishes in the face of this big, monstrous crowd that needs to be fed. You might be like, look, all I have is a measly degree in, like, agriculture. I can't do anything, right? Right? Like, I'm not, I'm not, look, I'm not judging you, all right? I'm just, whatever, it's just a bad analogy, baby. Some of you might be like, look, all I do is I work at Taco Bell, and I use it like guac gun. That's all that I know how to use. How's the guac gun? I like squirt guacamole into tacos. That's all I can do. All right, some of you are like, I don't have that much. I don't have any money. I don't have any great means. I don't have that much ability. I don't even have a car that can barely even get me further than 20 miles. It doesn't matter what you have. In your hands, it's making sure that what you have in your hands gets to the hands of Jesus. Because then what Jesus does is he uses that. He releases that. Blesses that. Look, at the end of the day, I mean, I I think there's a tendency to look at someone like me and be like, oh, man, he's been doing this for 18 years. And look at the church. He's been blessed and all that. Look, I want to try to take away some of the mystery of that. There's really no mystery to it at all. Try to demystify for you. I, I was 23 years old with my wife working at a company that wasn't making a lot of money when we felt God called us to move up to San Luis Obispo. We were married for two years. We got married when we were 20. We moved up here when we were 23. We started a little Bible study in our house, a little tiny condominium on, this, on the corner of Pismo Street, downtown Slow. Just a handful of us. We're just like, I don't have that much. We don't have that much. What we do have is a little tiny condominium with a tiny little house, you know, tiny little, you know, uh, area in which we can just gather. Let's just do what we have. Let's give what we have. We didn't make a lot of money. We didn't have a lot of money. We actually had one car for 10 years of our marriage. That's all that we had. It's all we survived on. My wife worked the majority of the hours. And she made more money than me. That was humbling for a while. But at the end of the day, it was just like, all we have is this. Let's just take what we have and let's let God use it. We opened up our house, invited people over. We had dinner. We didn't do anything spectacular. There was nothing out of the ordinary, nothing extraordinary. It was just a couple of regular people, just like you guys, love Jesus, and just open our house to see what God would do. 
God just continued to bless it. And this is the way that God does this. He takes what little we have, our little loaves, our little fishes, how insignificant those things may seem, and he uses it for his kingdom, for his glory. This is how Jesus works. What do you have? What do you have that Jesus is saying, give it to me. Put it in my hands. doesn't matter how insignificant it may seem to you, because in my hands, I'm able to change it into the most profound way to impact so many people's lives way beyond what you can ever even imagine. That's what Jesus does. So we see really the demonstration of God's compassion, not only through Jesus, but also then through his disciples. Thirdly, and finally, we see really the redistribution of God's life. And what I mean by this is that there are these like little hints in the passage. Obviously, the whole story is about Jesus breaking bread and feeding the disciples. Uh, and through the disciples, I should say, feeding all these other people. And so the, Mark leaves us these little hints. And it's kind of an interesting thing because typically in our culture, when we think of bread, we think of like carbohydrates. We think of pounds, right, around your midsection. We think of like calories. We think of like gluten. We think of stuff that just like, no, we don't want bread because it's bad for us. But first century, bread meant life. In fact, Jesus even uses this first century analogy. He says, I'm the bread of life. You guys need bread. You survive off of bread. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that you know, comes from the mouth of God. Basically, what he's saying is that he takes a first century understanding, illusion, or concept, and he says, listen, the thing that you guys eat as a staple, all right, maybe if this was like in China, right, even further east, uh, it'd be like rice, right? But this is Middle Eastern, and so bread is the metaphor here, and he's just like, look, I'm the bread of life, and the reality is, is that this is what gives you life. But here's what he goes on to describe, and there's this kind of interesting passage in verse 41 that actually Mark uses three verbs that are really important, I think, to the whole passage here. He says this, verse 31, he says, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves, and he gave it to his disciples, set before the people. Three verbs are these. One, he uses the word blessed. Uh, Eulageo is the Greek word. He also uses the word broke, which is to take the bread. He broke it. Katakleo, and then he says the word gave or didame. And it's this idea of blessing, breaking, and then giving or distributing. So the idea of blessing is he announces a blessing over uh, the meal. It's kind of an interesting thing because sometimes in our culture we're like, who's going to pray for the food? Uh, just, 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 you know, this might be a little pet peeve theologically, but nobody ever in the entire Bible prays for the food. Just a little side note. They pray a blessing over the food. They ask God to either bless the food or they thank God for being the blessing, blessed provider of the food. So just FYI, like don't, don't, you don't need to pray like, God bless this food. Like it's, it's already blessed because it comes from the hand of a blessed God. So Jesus would have prayed probably a very similar prayer from the Old Testament, thanking God, blessing God. And then finally, or secondly, he breaks it and then he distributes it or gives it to the disciples. Now the reason why I think this is important and these three verbs that Mark chooses here very carefully are very significant because later on, the only other time in the entire book of Mark that Mark uses these three same verbs in the same order is in Mark chapter 14, verse 22. It says this, it's at the Last Supper. It says, and then Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to them, and then he said, this is my body. So what Jesus does on what we typically would call the Last Supper is he takes the bread and he takes it, he 
uh, blesses it, thanks God for it, and then he breaks it, and then he gives it to his disciples. And what you need to see in this is that ultimately by the time you get to the end of the Gospel of Mark, just prior to the resurrection, what you see is Jesus on the cross being tortured. And what does Jesus do on the cross? He blesses those who curse him. He's broken and then ultimately given for the sins of the many. What Mark wants us to understand is to the degree that you see that you have a God that both blesses and breaks and then distributes himself to you so that you could live. The degree to which you understand that, the degree to which you get that, then you'll be changed. If you don't get that, if you don't understand, if you don't see that this is where the whole trajectory, the whole narrative of Mark is taking you, it's taking you to the cross, it's taking you to the bread of life that will be broken for you, for the sins of the world, and then distributed so that sinners, guilty sinners, could be welcomed in and given life. To the degree that you see that, to the degree that you get that, then you will be changed, transformed. I mean, think about it this way. Here you have a loaf of bread. As long, and here you are, say for example, a very, very hungry person. And to the degree that that loaf of bread stays on the table unbroken, then you at some point will fall to pieces. You'll die. You need to eat. And the way that you're going to eat at some point, that bread has to be broken. And if that bread remains whole, you will go to pieces. But if that bread goes to pieces and you'll be made whole. And here's what Jesus is saying, is that I'm setting for you an example, not just an example, but also a means. And you need to see Jesus as both means and example. That one as means, that he has substituted himself for you in his place. He was crushed so that you who are crushed could be made whole. The whole one, the holy one, was crushed so that you who are crushed and broken in pieces could actually become whole. That's what happened. In other words, Jesus lost power so that the powerless can be empowered. This is the revolution that Jesus started. It was different. It was nothing like any of the revolution. He's not distributing swords, shields, instructions on modern combat. He's in delivering and distributing bread. Being broken. He's giving himself. And secondly, you need to see Jesus as really an example. That to the degree that you see that Jesus did this for you, he gave himself for you, he gave up something for you so that you can live. And the rest of the New Testament, all throughout the New Testament, all of the writings of Paul, all of the writings of John and Peter, basically circulate around this theme, this idea that Jesus died in our place sacrificially, theologically, but then ultimately as an example so that as we follow the life of Jesus, here's what happens. We become part of that revolution. You're like, I'm imperfect. I'm inadequate. Just like the disciples. Of course, they were imperfect. They were inadequate. They didn't have what it took, but they had a God that empowered them for everything they needed. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. Yes, I'm starting a revolution. Yes, all revolutions begin at some point with judgment and blood that's going to be shed. 
But in this case, in this revolution, it won't be the opposition that will be crushed, but it will be the king who will be crushed for the opposition. You need to see that we have a king that actually dies, lays his life down, who is broken and crushed and bruised in the place of his enemies. There's no other revolution like that. Every other revolution that has ever happened always begins with some sort of idealism that says, we have the true way, we have the understanding, and we will crush the opposition. And Jesus comes and says, I will be crushed by the opposition. I will be broken so that my enemies will be given bread to live. This is, this is absolutely amazing. But you know what happens? Is that when you see that this is what Jesus actually calls us as disciples to as well, this changes the way that we live about everything. This changes the way that we see everything in our lives. And I want to finish with three ways in which I think if we understand this, that we'll be changed. Three ways. The first way that I believe that we'll be changed has to do with the way that we see our time. If we see our time as something that belongs solely to us, my time is mine. I use it on myself, how I want, when I want, for myself. If you live like that, hoarding your time, then you will never be part of this revolution. You will continue to be part of the problem. You will become selfish. You'll be self-driven, self-motivated. No one will be able to be blessed and moved and changed by you. But if you see that, like Jesus, who's outside of time, steps into time and takes time, even on his day off while he's tired and says, I will have compassion on these sheep that are like sheep without a shepherd. It has to do with how we see our time. You hoard time, you will lose your time. You will be part of the problem, not part of the solution. Secondly, we see it also has to do with our treasures, our money, the way that we spend our money. If you view yourself and your money and the things that you have and say, this is mine, I refuse to give it out, I refuse to be generous, then you will actually be continually part of the problem, not solving the problem. Is that if you saw your money, saw your resources, saw it as a means of being able to contribute, to give away to the hurting, give away to the poor, give away to the church as generously as you can, if you saw your means of being blessed in this life as if God gives you more money, because some of you, at some point, you're going to get a job that might be making more money or some sort of means of graduating within the field in which you're at, and you will start making more money. And if you don't get this principle, then what will happen is that you will just continue to increase your standard of living with the more money that you make, and you will continue to be bound, you will continue to be a slave, you will continue to be part of the problem. But if you saw God's blessing on your life, not as a means to increase your standard of living, but to increase your standard of giving, then you begin to take an axe against the root of the problem and give it away, to cut it down, to become part of the pushing forth of God's kingdom in this world. Until the day when Jesus comes back in its entirety, in its fullness and its realization, we have an opportunity now to use our money, to mobilize it as a means to bring blessing. And then finally, in the realm of relationships. If all you see in terms of relationships as means by which for you to advance yourself, your kingdom, your ways, you'll step on people, you'll be cold, and at some point in your life you'll be very lonely. 
But if you saw yourself as a person that has an opportunity to engage relationships, if you've ever been any, in any relationship for any length of time, any length of time, that's the key word, you've begun, you begun to find, find out that sometimes some relationships take a lot of time to work out. They're painful. Pain happens. People get their feelings stepped on. People get their feelings hurt and crushed. And sometimes it takes hours to work through the painful conversations of forgiveness and repentance and working to see, perhaps to some degree, finding some form of reconciliation. And it's very difficult. Spending three, four hours sometimes in conversations that you still need to spend at least another three, four hours at to really try to get to any type of result. But if you view relationships as just something that to be discarded anytime there's some sort of objection or problem or issue, but instead if you saw relationships as a means the way in which Jesus saw relationships as a way of bringing about redemption, then you will be part of this revolution. If you discard relationships, if you squander your money, if you hoard your time, then you will not be part of this revolution. You may claim to be part of the revolution. You may claim to memorize certain verses, but you don't know the gospel. You don't know the power. You don't know what God's done for you. And that's what the gospel does. To the degree that you see that Jesus did this for you, that warms your heart, softens who you are, and it changes you. We're going to respond Right now, by singing, worshiping, confessing sin. And I want to invite some of you. What we're going to do is we'll partake of communion. We do this every week. We have communion in the back, and we have the bread. It's already broken. But what I want you to do is I want you to see that bread that's broken. If you're not a Christian, I actually would encourage you to not partake of the communion. If you are a Christian, Paul talks to take the communion in a worthy manner. But this does not mean you sit there in your seat until you feel right. It's not what that means. A worthy manner basically means you receive the communion in faith and repentance. It means you just simply realize, God, I'm not worthy, but I trust you. So I'll partake, and I'll remember what Jesus did for me. We'll partake of that. And as you partake of that, I want you to think about Jesus' body that was broken and crushed so that you who are broken and crushed could be made whole. That because Jesus was broken and crushed, those of us who are broken and crushed can be made whole. That's what the gospel is. That Jesus is, as John would say, the bread of life. Freely given for you and I. At great expense to himself. But free to you and I. I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing. Jesus, we just thank you for the cross. And we want to humble ourselves before you right now. We want to confess sin to you. We want to recognize you as a good God. God, we want to just lay anything down that may be hindering us, anything that might be causing faith to be stifled. God, I pray that you would help us to have both faith and repentance, trust and confidence in you. So we want to sing to you now.